welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 40. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. We've got a great show and story for you today, but first, a bit of Drabble news. More than a century ago, a wolf-like creature prowled the Madison Valley, killing livestock and letting out screams that one account said would leave a person's hair standing on end. A bullet from a Mormon settler's rifle ended the animal's life and triggered stories of the creature that were passed along through generations of family history and local folklore. The only evidence of the creature's existence was a missing taxidermy mount and a grainy black and white photograph, which fueled strange speculation about what kind of animal it really was. Now, after 121 years, the taxidermy mount has been found. The creature that once spooked some of Madison Valley's first white settlers has come home. Backwater local types call it the Ring Docus, and other more scholarly folk call it the Shunka Warakin. Jack Kirby, grandson of the settler who shot the animal, tracked down the mount to the Idaho Museum of Natural History in Pocatello. He says he never doubted the story, and he recalls his grandfather's memoirs. It wasn't his first try. He accidentally shot and killed one of his cows when he first spotted the creature on his land. He killed it when it appeared on his land a second time, and traded the body with an entrepreneur named Joseph Sherwood for a new cow. It baffled folks who saw it alive, and some speculated it was a hyena escaped from a circus rather than a wolf. Whatever it was, wasn't right. You could tell on account of them screams at night. Grandpa said, in its death throes, the animal bit through a half inch of rope with a single bite and exerted his very last strength to reach any one of us. The mount will be in display in the Madison Valley History Museum when it reopens in May. Some folks are suggesting that a DNA test should be done on the mount to determine exactly what it is. Old man Kirby, however, was not so certain he was ready to end a mystery that had passed down his family for four generations. <laughs> Shit. You crazy if you think I'm gonna let damn university boys pick apart my ring docus to put in their fancy little machines. Considering inflation and the economy, you know how many cows this thing's worth today? More of this story can be found at Cryptomundo.com. Whether you're a fellow amateur cryptozoologist like me, or just someone who casually keeps up with where the latest lizard man was sighted, you should check this site out. Why wait till Wednesday to get your Drabblecast fix? There are weird stories going on around the world every day. Speaking of which, today we bring you two pieces by Anne Sauer. Anne is an undergraduate student at the University of Chicago. In addition to writing stories, she also writes songs and the occasional philosophy paper. You can visit her writing blog at amillionwordstogo.blogspot.com. First, a Drabble story, exactly 100 words, called Shark Attack. Shark! 
Shark! The beachgoers fled in terror. I grabbed one by the arm as she passed me and demanded, What's going on? Over there, she sputtered and pointed back to where she'd come from. A shark! That little boy! That was all I needed to hear. Releasing the woman, I rushed to where she'd been pointing. As I approached the shore, I could see blood in the water surrounding a small figure and a shark fin bobbing just a foot away. Hearing my footsteps, the child turned to look at me. He smiled, a big red smile. I sighed. Not again. Kids do the darndest things, don't they? But not all of them will bite clean through a one-inch rope when you catch them trying to eat your livestock. What about the innocence of youth? Well, without further ado, we bring you Marbles by Ann Sauer. On the back patio, in the early afternoon sun, Alice sat playing with her button collection. Off to the side, an empty cookie tin lay open, its current contents scattered in front of the little girl. First, she grouped the buttons by color. Black, then blue, her favorite, then brown, then white, then red. The rest, not matching any others, went back into the box. The white ceramic button with a pink rose painted on it. The square brass button, the bright yellow plastic one shaped like a bumblebee, and the green glass one that was really more of a marble than a button, but she kept that one anyway because it made her think of the sea. Next, within their colors, she arranged the buttons by size, from smallest to largest. As a child, she knew the value of small things. Lined up in rows, like soldiers or ellipses, the buttons glinted in the sunlight, awaiting the next command, the next idea. Finally, the buttons were separated according to the number of holes they contained. Well, if a lack of something can really be contained. And then, satisfied with her organization, Alice began to count them, sorted into all their different characteristics. 24 black, 3 small red, 31 medium buttons in all. From the window over her kitchen sink, Diana Lane watched the little neighborhood girl at her game and sighed. Doesn't she have any friends? Diana wondered aloud. How can her mother bear to let her play by herself like that every day, and not even with dolls like most little girls her age? If it were me, I'd cry all the time just thinking of it. Turning from the window, Diana called, Michael! The smattering of blocks and plastic soldiers against the floor could be heard, and then a boy of five or six with ruffled hair appeared at the kitchen door. Michael, his mother said, smiling and bending toward him. Don't you think we should invite your new neighbor over to play? Michael's eyes, nose, and the top of his tussled head appeared over the fence that separated his yard from that of the family who had moved in next door. He was standing on tiptoe. Hey. Alice looked up, bright blonde curls swinging across her face. Hey. What are you doing? Counting, Alice said simply. Oh, the boy responded, unsure of where the fun was in that. Um, do you want to come over and play with me? Carefully, 
color by color, Alice scooped up her buttons and returned them to the tin. She secured the lid, then stood, walked over to the fence, and looked up at the boy, peeping over. Okay. With the help of a bucket and a little effort, Alice climbed over the fence and Michael led her to the kitchen. Diana was delighted, and after introducing the children to each other, What's your name, dear? Oh, just like Alice in Wonderland. How sweet. She suggested that Michael show Alice to the playroom. I'll bring fresh cookies down soon, she called after them, feeling proud of herself for having a slice-and-bake cookie dough roll on hand. In the playroom, Michael showed Alice his toy army and the barracks he had built. Alice's bright eyes looked on with disinterest. Do you have any stuffed animals? she asked. Sure. Michael ran off and returned a moment later carrying in his arms a much-loved plush rabbit and explained that his name was Sam. Alice gazed curiously at the toy, its blue button eyes gazed back. Can I hold him? Well, Michael shuffled his feet. His mother would probably want him to be nice to his new friend. Okay, here. Holding Sam on her lap, Alice seemed to be inspecting the rabbit. Then she reached down as if to stroke its face, but instead she wrapped her little fingers around the right eye and pulled. With a snap of thread, the button came free into her palm. Yes, this color was just what she had been looking for. Little Michael's eyes began to water at what Alice had just done. Unable to speak, jaw trembling, he tore the now one-eyed Sam from her hands and ran from the room. Mommy! Mommy, she... Alice tucked her newfound treasure into her pocket, and her inquisitive eyes gazed around the playroom. The Lane's cat, whose name happened to be Oreo, dozed on a chair by the window. Napping was Oreo's favorite activity. She bothered no one, and no one bothered her. As Alice watched, the feline lazily opened one eye and looked back at her. That eye was the same sea-green color as the glass marble lying in the tin box in the patio next door. Calmly, deliberately, Alice walked toward the cat. In the afternoon, Alice sits on the back patio, a different patio, counting buttons poured from a tin. Their slightly rounded surfaces gleam as they catch the light. Black, blue, her favorite, brown, white, red. The misfits remain in the box, but now there's an addition. It used to be green, but now it's cloudy. A strange sinew hangs from it. It's not really a button, but when it catches the light, it too reminds Alice of the sea. Well, every kid needs a hobby, right? Some collect marbles for fun, and others collect them because they lost all of theirs. Join our discussion forums on the website and let's talk about it. There's a lot of things there that might catch your eye. <laughs> oh, I wish every episode was a Halloween special. Feedback for episode 35, The Guilt Trader by Mike Hood. The reason we accepted this story, hands down, can be summed up by Mr. Tweedy's comment. Uh, I either really liked it, 
or I didn't get it at all. If the short guy was trying to get rid of the dead monkey by unloading it on a sucker, then that's pretty funny. If there was something mystical going on, then I'm confused. Luke TC said, I could totally see this episode as a scene out of a Wes Anderson movie. Jason Swartzman as Brian and that little old Asian guy that's in all his movies as Eddie. And then at the end of the scene, Brian drops the monkey in the trash on his way out of the station, and some old kink song is playing really loud as he walks away in slow motion, lighting a cigarette. Pretty good, no? If you haven't listened to the story by now, I bet you want to after hearing those comments. Well, that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no-derivatives license, which means you can trade it for cows or questionable smelly mystery bags, but you can't charge for it or alter it. If you're a fan of the Drabblecast, you can let us know by commenting on the website, or you can do it monetarily by donating a few bucks to us via our PayPal link on the website, so that we can pair authors and stuff. If you're a writer, send your stories of 1 to 2,000 words to Drabblecast at yahoo.com, or send us a Drabble, a story of 100 words exactly, to the same address. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and myself, Norm Sherman, reminding you this week, the color of the sea. Picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round. An hour ago this place was loaded, and noise filled the room like the smoke. And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all splurred when spoke.